You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. I'm a football romantic, so I don't like this type of thing, but there's certainly the opportunity to to acquire a club, make a modest investment, get the right changing room environment, then you're in the Premier League, then you look to find an exit route. It's brand loyalty, it's an addictive nature, you know, it, it's inelastic demand, all of those economic perspectives, but it, it's a relationship which, which is like no other. Football fans are very short-term in nature. Football owners and directors are incredibly short-term in nature because in no other industry do you get rid effectively of your chief strategic officer with no succession planning. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time is Kieran Maguire. He's a football finance lecturer from the University of Liverpool. Carved a niche for himself as a forensic investigator of football finances. Goes through accounts of clubs predominantly in England, but uh, also has a view outside of England. And tries to put them on the straight and narrow financially. Obviously in the next few years we'll see the world's economy hit by the effects of coronavirus. Clubs will change hands, so what we're asking here is, how do you buy a football club? What do you look for? What's best practice? Should you even consider it? Because it seems to me a lot of very intelligent people in business terms make some very stupid decisions once they become a chairman or a president. This episode is brought to you by the Coco Federation of England. That's khokho.co.uk. That's a tag-based game from the Indian subcontinent. More details in the show. And they got in touch with me because I put it out there, and I'll put it out here now. If any business, predominantly small digital sports business, that needs a bit of a boost in these troubled times, contact me and you can become a partner on the show. Free of charge will... Just connect you with a couple of episodes and hopefully you'll get a little bit of a, a boost from it. If you want to contact me, my name is Mr. Richard Clark on social media. And you can go to Mr. Richard Clark, my website, to find me if you need a consultant in sports, digital or social media or content. You need a moderator, you need a speaker, I can do that too. Also, I've just got my first book out. It's called Last Wicket Stand. It's quite a personal book on cricket and midlife, county cricket and midlife, really. I follow the mighty Essex Cricket Club, so... Um, look out for that on Amazon. Anyway, without further ado, let's move from cricket to football and romance to finance. And ask the question, how do you buy a football club with this man? My name's Kieran Maguire. Uh, I'm a lecturer at the University of Liverpool. Uh, I specialise in football finance uh, in terms of teaching at both undergraduate and postgraduate level. Uh, I, I also do some teaching for the League Managers Association and uh, run a podcast myself and, and do the occasional bit of media work on top of that. Thanks for speaking to me, Kieran. This podcast is about how to buy a football club. So is this the best time? I know it's, it's coming out of what is a financial meltdown, really, for economies all over the world. But is this the best time you've known to buy a football club? It's a it's a risky time to buy a football club because we don't know when revenues are going to return. Uh, it could it could be that if we have a second or a third wave of coronavirus, then there'll be a further close down of the game. But risks come with rewards. So in terms of the prices uh, that, that people are in a position to pay, uh, we've seen in respect of the Newcastle deal that uh, if the PIF 
bid goes ahead. They're probably getting it at a discount of around about 20% on the pre-COVID price. Uh, we, we have seen the price of Manchester United shares initially fall by by around about 30 to 35%. The same was the case with Juventus because both of those cups are traded on markets. But those share prices have bounced back as well. Uh, but they're still trading at uh, significantly below pre-COVID prices. So if you have money and if you like taking a gamble then yes you can you can find a you can buy a football club very cheaply but buying it really isn't the problem it's uh, it's the ongoing costs of running the club when there's no guarantee of when revenues are going to return and to what extent are those going to, uh, revenues going to return that's going to be the challenge. But I'm certainly aware of clubs which are presently for sale. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of clubs in certainly the top three divisions. Um, and I can assure you, if you went to a League Two club owner as well and offered to take the club off their hands, a lot of people will be very interested because those, those overheads of running a football club are a very significant burden to bear. What sort of timescales are you expecting if there is a raft of sales? Because it's, it's been talked about all the, all the time that if these business models that have underpinned football, they collapse, obviously attendances, media rights, valuations as well. These things have held up football and they are under severe scrutiny. So what's the, what's the timescale and, and are, are you expecting a, a raft of sales? Um, it's, it's always difficult to tell in football because it attracts a disproportionate number of tyre kickers, people who want to make a name for themselves, people who want to be interviewed on the local radio and things of this nature. So therefore, they, they claim to be interested in, in buying the club. Uh, certainly, the Newcastle deal is... Uh, has, has made significant progress in the sense that it, uh, contracts have been exchanged for that. Uh, we, we saw what happened with Charlton uh, earlier this week. And um, I'm, I'm quasi-involved on at least two other deals myself. And, and I'm not a football person. You know, so people, people for some reason contact me um, asking for some some financial data about clubs. So um, we we could see, uh, you know, on on top of the two deals which I think are going to go through in terms of Newcastle and Charlton, we we could certainly see a handful of others. Uh, it's a relatively small industry. Um, but it does attract uh, a disproportionate amount of interest. And uh, the, the number of times that clubs change hands um, is also quite high as well because uh, so many clubs are losing money that people come in with an idea. They then realise that the cost of running a club is is far higher than they originally anticipated and therefore they start to look for an exit route. What do you look for in your due diligence when you examine a club? Um, well, the, the first thing you need to do is, is to is to establish the key assets. Uh, and as far as a football club are concerned, uh, I'd, I'd be looking initially at property-based assets. Does the club own the stadium? If not, is it on a rental agreement? How long is that rental agreement? Um, is there a change of control clause which could be invoked by the landlord um, and things of this nature? So, so. Uh, the club is going to generate its its revenue from the stadium, so that's that's the first thing to establish. Um, the other major assets of a football club are the players. 
So in, in, in the case of players, you'd be looking to see uh, looking to see the contracts and identify when those contracts expire. Um, are there uh, add-on clauses that we might have to pay? Um, are there uh, sums of money that we might also have to to pass across should those players be sold to, to in, in respect of former clubs? And then, of course, in, in respect of, uh, of players themselves, you'd be looking at the committed wage costs because... Uh, in the championship, you're paying out £107 on average for every £100 worth of income, which is uh, uh, illogical uh, from a business perspective. You will have ongoing cash flow commitments in terms of transfer payments because most deals these days are structured on credit terms. So therefore, are there significant outflows which are going to be due over the course of the next few years? And then you'd sort of do a, a, general, uh, a general cost analysis to see um, do they have unusual uh, levels of expenditure? Are there, are there commitments to uh, related parties and things of that nature? So what about Europe? Because you've talked about England so far. So is there better value overseas, but is there more danger overseas for an English group buying, for example? I suppose the, the better question is how important is local knowledge? Um. I, th- I think you, you need an awareness um, that there is certainly more interest coming from English clubs or English club owners at present um, in in the terms of buying clubs in Europe as a result of Brexit, because um, following the, the government's decision to make it more difficult to recruit uh, people from uh, from the EU or from the former EU um, to the UK, and, and that includes footballers. Um, that there's going to have to be more uh, nuanced, more creative ways of uh, finding talent, harbouring that talent. Initially, you you could have brought players from Romania, from Portugal, pay them relatively little, give them a chance to to see whether they fit in with the culture, with the style. Can can we improve their abilities? Are are they good in terms of coaching and things of nature? And, And then hopefully to move them either into the first team squad environment or if if you've got a good under 23 club you can move to sell them on at a profit um that won't be possible that'd be very difficult uh, in in the post eu environment uh, because it's going to be a points based system and it's going to be the equivalent of, of signing players from outside of the eu so therefore what uh, what club owners are doing is they're looking to see if they can find opportunities within Europe to to buy clubs and, and effectively to use those that those sort of satellite clubs um, as, uh, as as a means of uh, bringing on the talent and and then you could uh, you, there are there are ways of bringing the players into the the host host club country so so we've we've seen uh, Manchester City has has forty four percent of uh, is it Girona uh, in Spain it also recently bought a club in either I think it was the Belgian second division um, it, 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 it already had uh, investments uh, around the, around the non-EU world um, I think Chelsea are looking to tie up closer relationships with with a club in Europe we've got Brighton Hove Albion uh, their owner Tony Bloom has bought a Belgian second division club and so on um, so this will become I think more attractive and more logical from from a club if if it's looking to go down the development route uh, in terms of uh, player transactions. In in the UK, where's the best value? Because there's the, there's the Scottish League, and that's a, a route into Europe, isn't it? Um, you, you you would think the expenditure to get a 
a lower Premier Division club in Scotland would be much less than uh, a club that is likely to play in Europe in in England. So is is that better value? Is there, is there value in the League of Ireland? Is there value in, in the Northern Irish League? Because of that European part. In, in terms of the domestic return, probably not. Um, so, so as you rightly identified, Richard, that... Uh, it's a case of are there opportunities of getting into Europe. So if we if we take a look at uh, if we take a look at TNS in Wales, they win the Welsh League every year. They therefore qualify for the Champions League in terms of effectively the first qualifying round, and and the money they make from that is probably the equivalent of what the other clubs are making together um, in the, in the Welsh league. So th- there, there are certainly opportunities from going from the, the non, the non-England route. Um, I, th- I think the problem in Scotland is that realistically you have to accept that the, the, the top two positions are going to be occupied by the two major Glasgow clubs. Um, you know, I appreciate that, uh, last year, I think Aberdeen came second and Rangers third, but, the, the ongoing impact of Rangers having, you know, they've just signed a new kit deal, which is very lucrative. Clearly, they sell out their ground every week and things of this nature. If, if, they, if those two clubs fail to be the top two and are therefore taking the Champions League qualification route and uh, the, the, the first of the Europa League um, is going to be difficult. The Europa League isn't particularly uh, lucrative from a match day revenue perspective, unless you are the big two Glasgow clubs. It, you know, if you're if you're Aberdeen or Dundee or Kilmarnock and you're you're playing a club from Denmark or, or, or Albania, you're not going to get a decent crowd. Um, the, the the TV monies are uh, are broadly split eighty percent to the Champions League and twenty percent to the Europa League. So unless you get into the the group stages of those competitions, um, it, it's quite a challenge uh, to to make a return financially. My personal view is: I think that there are uh, that there are opportunities, um, as as we saw with Foson and Wolverhampton Wanderers, to acquire a club either at the bottom of the Championship or League One. If that club's got good infrastructure, um, then all, all you really need to do is to say, "Well, we, we know we're going to make money." Um, from uh, from being able to sell the ground out. So, what's the capacity of the stadium? Um, if you are an overseas owner, or if you if if you have links, then yeah, we can certainly improve the commercial side of things. Uh, and you know, Wolves were, was bought for three for, was bought for thirty million. You could sell it for ten times that today. Um, in terms of a, a club such as Wigan, Wigan went for I think eighteen million just before Christmas. Um, you know th- that. That was if you've got owners who are prepared to come in and then invest in players, um, then you're you're only one step away from the Premier League. I, I don't think there's a lot of value in the Premier League itself, uh, but if you if you get your sums right and you get your recruitment strategy right, then further down the pyramid there, there's certainly the ability. Um, you know, and I, I'm a football romantic, so I, I I don't like this type of thing from a, from a from a purist perspective. But there's certainly the opportunity to to acquire a club, make a modest investment, get the right changing room environment. You've only got to see what happened with Sheffield United. You look at Huddersfield, you look at Burnley, you can think about the, there's been quite a few clubs who have been promoted without spending beyond their means significantly. Um, then you're in the Premier League and then, then you look to, to, uh, to find an exit route. I used to work for Arsenal for many years. I used to interview Arsene Wenger and he always used to say that 
The potential of a football club is always down to their fan base. The size of their stadium, which is based on the size of their fan base. The history that they've had. So how does that work? Because a, a Burnley and a, a Leeds, for example, if Leeds go up, they instantly become... I don't know, top 10 in the Premier League, top 8 in the Premier League, given the size of their support, the history, etc., etc. But then again, when you're evaluating a football club, you're also thinking about property. You're also thinking uh, about transport links, air- airports, things like that sometimes. So, so where does that history piece fit in? Bear in mind its potential and it's not reality. I, I think in terms of history, it, it's very good if you are pitching the club to prospective new owners. So therefore, I don't know whether you've seen the, uh, the the documentation, the brochures that went out in respect of Newcastle earlier this year. Um, you know, it was very much focused on the the, the, the club. You know, it's got a 50,000 capacity stadium. Um, you, you've got the links with... Uh, yeah, you know Paul Gascoigne, Chris Waddle, Kevin Keegan, and so on. Um, and these are people that uh, even non-football uh, prospective buyers will have heard of. And and you can leverage on that because the, you know the, the first thing you've got to do is is to get somebody through the door. And that that so it will it will help in that regard. If if a club has a of a history and heritage, then potentially it has a, an overseas fan base. So there's the opportunity to to leverage on that in in terms of products that you can sell them, which are more than just match day tickets. So if, if you know, I I work at the University of Liverpool, um, they have a membership scheme, and and the I, th- I think you pay twenty five pounds or thirty five pounds for your annual membership scheme. That gives you ten percent off in the in the club shop or something of that nature, which yeah you know, doesn't seem a particularly good return, but it gives you the opportunity to buy tickets. Now tickets are sold twice a year, um, and then what happens is you've got a hundred thousand people. All of a sudden they're paying uh, twenty five thirty five pounds. What they're getting in return for that? Well, they're getting an an opportunity to perhaps buy one or two tickets if they are lucky for when those tickets go on sale and the and and the and the, the Liverpool website really is is creaking at the seams and people are, are queuing up for hours so it, it allows clubs uh, if they've got that history and heritage to to leverage on that and i think going forwards um what we will find is that the value of the data that uh, that clubs will be able to mine about their fan base has been underexploited historically. Um, so therefore, if you think about Arsenal and, and uh, you know, they've got th- their history, they've got a, they've got a big fan base. I mean, I I, I teach uh, overseas quite a lot, and they've got a big fan base in in Cyprus, for example, um, as have Liverpool and, and some other clubs. Um, and once you've got them into your ecosystem, then you can start to. Uh, do something a bit more creative with that data that you have on them. You know, all, all of a sudden, you you know how many matches they've been to. Uh, you know whether the, you'll find out whether they're watching matches. You know, it, it, this 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 data, as we all know, data data has value. We're moving into the big big data environment increasingly, um, and it's up to clubs to acknowledge that. There's still an awful lot of old school owners in football who, who think it's a load of nonsense. And if that's the case, I, I suspect that those clubs are probably underpriced uh, because anybody with a bit of uh, tech savvy will be able to come in and uh, deal with that. 
Originating on the Indian subcontinent, Coco is a tag sport that develops a player's speed, agility and decision-making. It's nothing like you've ever played before and if you come to one of the sessions organised by the Coco Federation of England, you can try it out. Go to coco.co.uk. That's k-h-o-k-h-o.co.uk. Where does private equity fit in? Because there is a fear amongst football fans that their clubs may be bought for purely profit reasons and private equity provides funds but it wants a cash return and many football clubs chase the dream and run uh, poor businesses in the purest sense in order to chase that dream so what are your views on the potential of private equity um, certainly in my opinion rearing its ugly head (laughs) in this particular post post covid world football world a, a football fan is is a romanticist. A football fan has an incredible emotional investment in a club, which is at the opposite end of the scale to somebody involved in private equity. I think if you are coming from a private equity angle, you've you've got to be looking at your exit route before you buy the club. Whether you know, you know is it going to be three years? Is it going to be five years? You've also got to accept that during that period, the chances of the company making a, a return is going to be zero or close to zero. Um, but you will be aiming to streamline the business to make it more attractive for the next buyer, either by uh, improvements in cost control, either by leveraging on the on on the club's uh, reputation, the, the the club's brand, the logo, and things of this nature to make it more attractive, and and then you get out, uh, because uh, the the big danger with with a football club, uh, if if we exclude the big six. Is that uh, you're you're operating in an industry where you've got clubs which have, uh, I think, half the clubs in in the Premier League, seventy five percent or more of their income comes from a TV deal, and if you get relegated, you lose you lose access to that TV deal. So therefore, it, it is a high risk industry. Um, private equity will, um, you know, they are vultures uh, in terms of looking for bargains. Um, if if you've got owners that are looking to get out, then then they might get involved. As a football romantic, uh, I, I, I abhor their, their involvement. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's called the beautiful game for a reason, and uh, they don't see any beauty in it. I did a podcast with Nicola Palios at Tranmere, and uh, they've been very innovative in their community-based schemes, schemes with the local authority based on ed- educational co-development. That's... A business model that works for them, but they're at a certain level. And I think even Mark Palios has talked about their inability to move from League One to the Championship. I know they've obviously just just gone down, unfortunately. But he was even when they got up, they were talking about it, it because of the way they were structured. It was hard for them to compete in the Championship. So is community a a business model for a Championship club? Is it a possible foundation stone for a club that? has ambitions to go into the Premier League. Um, Yes, it does, because it's an additional income stream. It's not a substitute for uh, broadcasting, commercial and match day. So if you if you have a club which which has significant income coming from those areas, um, then uh, I I think that if if it it gives you an extra half million, a million pounds a year, then then that's a positive. And, uh, you know, fans and, and, and other people will will be happy to. To be associated with that because it, it it 
it allows the club to project itself um, to commercial partners, to sponsors as well, as uh, as an alternative to just being open 25 days a year. And I think what we are seeing at present is that a lot of uh, commercial partners and sponsors, they are becoming increasingly conscious of uh, corporate social governance issues, uh, and this would be seen in a positive light. So I, I don't think it will make a... It won't make a difference if we, if we take a look at the revenue streams for clubs in in the championship. You know, the, the average revenue is around about twenty five, twenty six million. Um, you, you're not going to get uh, a, 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 a large amount of money from the from the effectively. I mean, I, I spoke to Mark Palios two days ago. Um, immediately, sort of, it was the day after Tranmere had been uh, kicked out of of League One. I mean, they weren't relegated. Uh, you know, and, and Mark is very, very upset. It, it, it won't, it won't be a critical uh, number, but it's, it's a case of every little helps. And, and I think what we've got to do is to sweat the assets because the traditional football model of having your facilities open twenty-five days a year for four hours a time is is crazy. Um, so therefore, um, let, let's let's try to be innovative, let, let, and, and also let's do this for a social good. Let's do this for a public good, because in in the post COVID world, um, there's an awful lot of people that are going to need some form of assistance, and, and that that message will get out, and people will become aware, and people will be more willing to give support to the club on, on the back of that. So I, I think uh, it, it sends out a very strong message to to fans and prospective fans as well. The community part of your business plan is important because it feeds into growing the commercial asset that the sponsorships the partnerships etc etc and and that's absolutely fine i get that but that's still viewing it in monetary terms but the other side of what you're saying is that message will get out people will believe in your club because you are doing good and i totally get both of those points the only thing is the commercial side is more measurable is financial and the other side isn't measurable it's a bit warm and fluffy and you can't measure and monetize warm and fluffy except for that commercial piece so i often find that while i agree with you the community side everyone says it's important but they don't actually take it seriously because they don't see the whole the cold hard numbers that are directly associated with it even though they are indirectly Yep, it's, it's certainly it's an it's an intangible benefit. There's there's no doubt about it. Um, it it's the same as having a women's football team. Uh, you know, if if you take a look at all of the women's, uh, if you take a look at the finances of the WSL, um, and I was talking on Talksport a few days ago to uh, to to their presenters about this very issue, is that they're all losing money, but the the uh, the senior clubs to which they're attached, um, they they don't want to uh, they don't want to abandon it just because they're losing money because they do see it as being uh, having a um, having this 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 warm and fluffy benefit and they're hoping that they're hoping for a, it, it's it's a it's a long-term investment there's there's not going to be any profits made in the wsl for a significant period of time um we, we've seen a club such as liverpool being relegated um out of the wsl this year but i think clubs are willing to try things of this nature a because an awful lot of people who work in football are 
have a social conscience. You know, that they, they are aware of the history and the heritage of the club and its roots and so on, um, and, and they want the club to reflect on that. Also, you know, the, the fan base, the fan base do become very militant. We've only got to see the, the reaction of fans of both Liverpool and Spurs when both of those clubs tried to take advantage of the government's furlough scheme, which from a financial point of view was the right thing to do. But but in terms of this this soft fluffiness, you know, in terms of well, you know, Liverpool is my football club, Spurs are my football club. I hold them to a higher level of responsibility and account than I do for practically any other supplier. And ultimately, that's what a football club is. It's a supplier of entertainment to us. But when you know, when when I'm choosing to go do my grocery so- grocery shopping, I, I don't. You know, if, if Tesco's are doing it, if Sainsbury's are doing it, I, it's not going to make a blind bit of difference to me as to where I'm going to where I'm going to go and buy my potatoes from. Um, but in terms of football, yeah, it, it it does make a difference because we like to think that the football club has the values to which we hold close to our hearts as well. It's meaning and identity. I talk about it a lot on this particular podcast, but. You are less likely to change your spouse than you are your football club. I always say that a little bit softly because my wife's in, in the next room. But it's true. It's true. And and that sort of emotion cannot actually be bought. I mean, I am an Arsenal fan and I always say, it doesn't matter what Tottenham do. Tottenham could win any trophies. They're not in danger of winning any trophies soon. But they now have a better stadium than, than Emirates Stadium. For, for years, Arsenal held, um, held the upper hand there. There was a period of time where Arsenal didn't play as good football but they did win trophies as Tottenham now and then they did play good football and the stories that Arsenal fans told themselves entirely changed they told themselves a different story based on the emotion they attached to the club that that emotional battleground is is actually the most important part and I don't think clubs pay they don't spend a lot of brain power on that emotional part and strengthening that emotional part I don't know what you think about that but I know you're a romantic as well so I'll put that that, that to you yeah, I, I agree entirely with you there, Richard. It, it is, uh, yeah, as, as somebody that lived in Manchester for 40 years uh, following Brighton Hove Albion, why why did I do that? I had Manchester United, Manchester City, Liverpool, Everton, and you know, a, a myriad of other clubs on my doorstep. And instead, uh, you know, I, I caught the 637 for God knows how many years. Um, every sat every other Saturday to go and watch a club, which frankly was pretty rubbish most of the time, um, and it is that emotional that 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 crazy. You know, we we call it loyalty. Uh, it, you know, it, it's it's brand loyalty. It's an addictive nature. You know, it, it's inelastic demand. All of those sort of uh, economic perspectives, um, but but it is uh, it, it's a relationship which, which is like no other, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I I agree entirely with you. I've, uh, as, as my ex-wife will testify to the 117 grounds which I've been to watching my my team. Well, they they were grounds for divorce. <laughs> You've trotted that out a few times. I would think. Now, I'm going to turn into Kevin Day for a second. I do love your podcast, the the Prime Football. It is very good. But I'm going to turn into Kevin Day, even though. He's- considerably funnier than I am um, because I'm going to read out a financial question that I don't particularly understand but I asked someone who's more intelligent than me if they had a couple of of questions with regard to uh, the finances of football and he said describe the ideal capital structure of a football club and business that could succeed equity debt mix key contracted cash flows and other liabilities to monitor and manage successfully 
Um, well, well, the perfect uh, football model is the is the benevolent dictator model. So it it will be a combination of interest free loans and equity. But there, there's no financial there's no there's no financial gains. Um, you know that that's that's the Chelsea model. Uh, Chelsea are, will be in a position to exploit the transfer market uh, this summer, uh, probably like no other club because they have an owner. You know, he, Abramovich has just brought. He's, he's just purchased Munch's The Scream, hasn't he? For you know, it was 150 million. Uh, the, the money means means nothing to him. So that that effectively um, capital, which has a zero return expectation from the owner, is is ideal because that means that all of the money can be invested into the club. Um, but in terms of getting the balance, and ultimately we are looking at balance between sporting achievement and financial achievement um that's clearly tipped probably you know from on a sustainability basis for for all the clubs in 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 football that wouldn't work so if you support that club that's the perfect model to go for um in terms of another model debt is debt debt is really dangerous in football um third third party debt unless you are unless you have guaranteed future cash flows so if if we take a look at the two clubs in in the premier league which do have significant debts we've got spurs and manchester united what do we know about both of those clubs they're not going to be relegated um you know arsenal have debts as well but they're they're considerably lower than those of spurs and united um so therefore, because you've got guaranteed future cash flows, uh, you you can you can uh, borrow at cheap rates, and, and we're seeing United, um, you know, they've rescheduled their debts between two and a quarter and three point seven five percent. I think Spurs are looking at an average of about two and a half percent. You can you can easily service that debt. So ha- having access to cheap debt is okay, provided you've got the guarantee of income coming in. As we drop down the Premier League, if if we you know if we're looking at a, a club in the nature of Southampton, Burnley, Palace, Brighton, or whatever, um, those clubs are, are would be perceived as a risk by traditional lenders. Um, so therefore, I think the the interest rates being charged would perhaps be prohibitive. Um, and, and what we are seeing those clubs do instead is is go to a funding model which is based on um, invoice discounting. And uh, yeah, a lot of the clubs are using invoice discounting in terms of player sales. But looking at the rates being charged there, they're, they're around about six to seven percent. Yeah, that's that that's a si- sizable slice uh, of a transfer fee. What other trends have you seen, sort of accounting trends that you've seen that clubs are using? Because obviously you've had the, the derbies of this world selling their training grounds and leasing it back, which has got them into a bit of a legal mess, I think I'm right in saying. But what other accounting trends are clubs using to manage their finances pre-COVID, but certainly post-COVID? Um, what, what they are doing now is they are using provisions as a means of cost cost control. So um, what if, if a club's relegated or especially what they will do is that they will say, well, um, we're going to create a provision for wage costs for um, some members of our squad for the next three or four years and then release those back to the income statement. So th- this is sort of the equivalent of, of Big Bath accounting going back to the late 80s. It's supposed to have been uh, outlawed uh, un- under financial reporting standards, but 
I don't know how clubs are getting away with it. Uh, yeah, they, they've got clearly uh, good relations with their auditors. Um, I, I, I feel quite uncomfortable. So Newcastle were a prime example of this. I think Norwich did this when they were relegated. They were saying they, they put it down in the form of onerous contracts, but it does allow clubs to uh, to to, incre- to inflate and deflate costs to uh, to suit whatever uh, agenda that they're looking to, to to supply to either owners or prospective owners. What would you do as a an accountant in this particular area or with an accounting mind in this particular area to make clubs more accountable to their fans and more transparent? I, I would insist that uh, fo- football has certain benefits. So, so we have the football creditors rule, um, which, which allows uh, football players, uh, for full-time employees of clubs, it allows other clubs to which are owed money for transfer fees. It gives them a precedence in, in terms of distributions in things or, such as administration. Um, now, that, th- 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 those football benefits have come at a zero cost. To clubs, zero cost to the industry, um, and it and it has disadvantaged uh, other creditors. So I I would uh, I, I would insist that all clubs have to publish full accounts. Too many clubs are publishing abbreviated accounts. Um, if a club announces its results via a press release, it should it must publish the accounts fully at the same time because otherwise what we're seeing is you get a potted history you, you get a you get a greatest hits collection of data uh, announced to the press that gets published in the local newspapers a week later the full set of accounts comes out um and it's it's left to people i mean i'm sure you're familiar with the with the work of the the incredible swiss ramble you know the guy who there wouldn't be football finance if it wasn't for for for, for swiss himself um you know he's he, he's the governor as far as i'm concerned with, with regards to this particular industry um so it, it's down to the likes of him and myself and one or two others to to go through the small print but people have lost interest because they say well, well you announced the results a week ago um I, I think it would be quite good if we had uh pro formers uh, so that there was greater consistency within the industry in terms of the way that data is presented um and it, it would be good to have an overseer of football and some form of uh, bond required, similar to what we're seeing with the likes of APTA and the travel industry. If you're going to come in and buy a football club, then you must put money into uh, some form of an escrow account or something of that nature, um, and you only get that back upon the sale of the club um, if there is if if you can prove that uh, you've left the club in in a good financial position. If you don't, then 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 you lose your rights to that money. It makes it more difficult, of course, to attract people to the industry under those circumstances. But in my view is that the, the first type of person that that's going to discourage is going to be the wrong ones. It's going to be the rogue owners, the likes of Steve Dale at uh, at Berry, the likes of Ken Anderson at Bolton. Um, and there's others that, that I could mention, but I won't. Where do you stand on the fit and pr- proper persons test? Um, is it worth the paper it's not written on? It, it's lip service. Um, I mean, the the only good thing, uh, it, it it's it's lip service because to say, oh, we we're not allowing, yeah, okay, no nobody wants somebody who's got a historic conviction for child sex offences to be involved with the football club. I I fully understand that, but you you would hope that. You know, these people are relatively few and far between. Similarly, people, you know, I, I've not got a criminal record. You've not got a criminal record. You know, 99% of, no, you know, 99.9% of people I know don't have a criminal record. So, you know, th- this this idea that it's something to do with 
um, a moral or ethical issue by calling it initially fit and proper before they then called it owners and directors, I, th- I think has, has, has confused fans because they think that the tests are, uh, are there to prevent, the, you know, in inverted commas, the wrong people from getting involved in the game. It, it's, it's better than nothing, but it's, it, it's not much better than nothing. Um, and what we are seeing, um, and, and, and as we have in fact seen in respect of uh, the Charlton takeover, uh, Charlton was sold for a pound in January um, to a new owner who was making all the right types of noises, but was unable to furnish the EFL with the uh, with, with the evidence that he could underwrite the losses of the club. Charlton's now been sold five months later to another new owner, again effectively buying it from for a pound. Um, but this person themselves hasn't pub, hasn't passed the owners and directors test, so therefore Charlton cannot sign players. They weren't able to sign players in the January window, um, and and we've seen all of the accusations which have been flowing uh, in respect to one of the owners in in terms of you know twelve thousand pound a month flat in London, uh, renting a Range Rover for the the owner and so on. It, it just made you feel very uncomfortable. And, and this is operating in an owners and directors world, so it, it, it's difficult because football is ultimately governed by company legislation. Um, to, the The only way that the owners and directors test will be beefed up is if the existing owners and directors vote for it. And the problem you've got there is that many of them are looking for exit routes. So why vote for something which is going to make it more difficult for you to find an owner and for you to get the price for the club that you want? So there's a paradox that, yes, we do want uh, the people who who least want uh, to have a tough owners and directors test are the existing owners and directors who, of course, write the rules or approve the rules. You talked about the benevolent dictator model. Um what part do fans play in the potential buyers of football clubs? Because it strikes me that for a long period of time, the what fans wanted was in comes this person, they throw a load of money at the club, we spend it, and hopefully we're successful. And then that person uses up their money, they're gone, and then the next person comes in. And it, it doesn't it exacerbate a boom and bust. Yes, it does. I mean, what, f- fans are not looking for investors. Fans are looking for sugar daddies. If, if you talk to anybody at Newcastle, and I think I think the local the local newspaper did a poll amongst fans with regards to um, the issues in respect of human rights uh, human rights um, in Saudi Arabia. Ninety six percent of fans said we don't care. Um, and uh, I do a lot of work. I, I go on Radio Newcastle every time there's an update on the story. Um, I, t- I talk to the lo- local newspaper. Um, I, I, t- I talk to fans. Uh, and the first question that they always ask me is, do you think the deal is going to go through? Second question, how much money have we got to spend? Yeah, Because it's... So we're not look we're not looking at it from an investment perspective. We're looking at it from this this person's going to shower me with uh, is going to shower me with Coutinho's. But should fans move beyond that? Because as much as I I love what Tranmere have done, I wonder if they would be getting criticism for not being promoted, even if they've done all the same excellent business work and community work that they've done. Their success is based on they've won two playoffs. Rather than all that groundwork that we've put in, and you know, I, I heard a story about Bromby, Red Bull 
were trying to go and buy Bromby and do a and do a Leipzig with with uh, with with Bromby, and the Bromby fans said no, and that's that would be financially that would be fantastic for Bromby, who are out of the picture um, as as the top couple of Danish clubs that they've been usurped from that position. So I, I just think that while I agree with you, I also like to think that fans are increasingly more aware of these things and hopefully we're moving to a stage where they can see the longer term because they've had too many busts and the booms haven't been long enough. Um, I, I think it's a cultural issue. In, in Germany, um, I, the fans are with you. Um, it, it's good to hear about what you've just said about Bromby. I, I think if you, if you take a look at what's happened in, in England over the course of the last you know, 20 to 30 years, we, we effectively had a monopoly of success um, under Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. Arsenal then interrupted that as a result of Wenger. Um, and then the, the, really the, the two interruptions since that have been Chelsea and Manchester City, both of which have been benevolent dictator-based. So therefore, fans are, are looking, they're not looking for in the long term. Because you know, if, 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 you're, if you support a team which loses three matches on the trot. I can guarantee if I went to that club's internet uh, forum, it would be, you know, there'll be a poll for manager out. Uh, he's lost the dressing. Oh, you know, all, all, the, all the banal cliches from people that don't understand football, who think they understand football, um, will come to the fore. Football fans are very short-term in nature. Football owners and directors are incredibly short-term in nature because in no other industry do you get rid effectively of your your chief strategic officer with no plan, uh, with no succession planning that, that we see in football all the time. Um, um, so with, with the game being run on a short-term basis, fans get into that mentality um, in many clubs um, but not all. Uh, if, if you if you talk to to fans at Tranmere, and you know I, I, I work in the city of Liverpool, um, I've got colleagues who are Tranmere fans. They they've all bought into the, the, the Mark and Nicky model, um, and they fully understand it. Uh, I've I've been to Accrington and I met, I met Andy Holt there, you know, and Andy Holt is he's great. You know he's 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 in the he's in the bar pre and post match. You know he'll chat to anybody. And the fans are really proud because they think they he represents their values and vice versa. Um, if there is a disconnect between the fan base and the the boardroom, then um, the the what will happen is that the directors will will start to operate on a short term basis because they're trying to get the affection of the fans not through proper engagement but by making populist decisions. Um, and you know, as as we've seen historically, populist decisions uh, in all in many in many walks of life are not necessarily those which are for the benefit in the long term. Yeah, I just think that you're right, Andy Holt. I was going to bring that that up as a fantastic example of someone who's um, well, for a start, he's he's got his club batting above their average. I would say that, and Tranmere are batting above their average too. And and yet again, you've still got to see their success within that light. But that notwithstanding, he's communicated we're going to do this a different way because otherwise <laughs> we've got nothing. Otherwise, we've got just this cycle of one year up, ten years down. One year up, ten years down. And I don't see. Given that even if you're a lower Premier League club, there's no chance you're getting in the Champions League anytime soon. I can see, certainly if a European Super League happens and 
and and uh, and the top clubs disappear to a certain extent, maybe it'll change. But given that the best a Watford can do is halfway up the Premier League, that's it, and maybe a cup run. You've got to sell your fans a different story because it can't be one based on success anymore. Yes, it, it is. It's um, as as a fan of a club that has now been in the Premier League for three years. It's it's survival. It's existence. It's it's not it's not fun anymore. Uh, tearing up the cha- championship is where it's all at. Uh, you know, as, as I, I genuinely enjoyed the time in the championship far more because you were seeing your team win. Um, but it, it, it's it's that classic. You know, it's better to travel than to arrive. Um, I, I think fans still do have this romantic notion. You've only got to look at Wolverhampton Wanderers, Sheffield United. Of course, there's the Leicester story from 2016. Leicester have got a very good chance of Champions League football. Um, and, and that's what you're, you're, you're buying in for. Yeah, we might get a lucky season. On the back of that, we might get into Europe. Yeah, Burnley were in Europe last year. And, and all the fans went went to the away matches. And I said, and I spoke to a few of them. And I said, well, it, it wasn't actually that great, um, but but we've done it. Um, and every year that there, there is, you know, that that club, it's either Burnley or Leicester or Sheffield United, and therefore you will hope that it could be your year. And and that's what that's what the the fans of these these other clubs. And also, it's quite exciting avoiding relegation. There, there is. It's not a nice excitement, um, but there is. There is a. a you are getting to see a better product. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that the quality of the of the play in, in the Premier League is is a long way ahead of um, that of the Championship. Although, in terms of adrenaline, it's not necessarily because it's more, it's a more technical product that you're watching. Just to go back to an accountancy question for a second, um, transfer values. And, and the the view of price and the view of the deal. Um, have you got a view on, on how a transfer deal and a price should be accounted for and how we should view them, fans should view them? Um, I, I think fans should ignore them because um, what, what we make the mistake of doing is judging a player's performance not on exactly what he has done on the pitch, but on, on the price which has been quoted in the press for the registration of of his transfer over which he has zero control yeah that that's negotiated by two third parties um so trying to work out a, a, an appropriate transfer price is is impossible um it, it's it's a negotiation issue uh if you take a look at uh the, it, it's a case of how strong and how weak are the two partners involved as far as that transfer is concerned i think a classic example is that of harry Maguire to Manchester United, uh, United and City originally bid 50, then 60, then 70. Now, Leicester didn't have to sell. They were in a strong financial position themselves. City then dropped out. United went to 80. Leicester said, we, we want it to be 80. And uh, by the way, we're uh, we're building our new training ground. It's, it's not going to be the norm. United historically have been buying players on credit. It's 80 cash up front. The Glazers and Ed Woodward were desperate for a marquee signing and therefore they agreed to it. So it's it's really a case of the pressures upon the two parties involved, which ultimately determine that final price. Is he worth £80 million? I've no idea. It's it's very difficult in the nature of a team game to work out whether a player is is overpriced or underpriced. There's 
in my time in football, I've increasingly seen a lot of very intelligent people come out of the wider business world and come into, into football. But there's still some incredibly stupid decisions made, certainly from what I can see. Now, they don't all turn stupid. Is that down to what you talked about, that pressure of the fans' expectations? And should, I suppose, my, my supplementary question, which I'll ask before you've answered the first one, is, is, is should executives not ignore the fans, but ride, ride a longer-term horse than a short-term horse in their decision-making? Yes, I mean, uh, um, you know, I, I support a club where the owner took the view that we're going to focus on infrastructure first, and on on, on the back of that, we'll get promoted. Um, you know, he's he's a very wealthy individual. He he could have spent a fortune um, at our old ground, and potentially we could have been in the top half of the championship on the back of that. But it would have meant that you you're always losing money. So, but and he managed to persuade the fans to buy into that. But they started grumbling within a couple of years because that's the nature of football fans. Um, There are a lot of people that buy into football clubs. I mean, if you talk to to Simon Jordan, you talk to Mark Goldberg at Palace, who have been successful in their own business. And because they're successful in their own business, they think they have the Midas touch. And they don't. And it's not not disrespectful to them. You know, we, we all... You know, you don't get to be a millionaire without being smart in general, with the exception of Donald Trump, of course. Um, but um, it doesn't mean that your skill set is transferable to an industry which is dictated by the activities of you know, 15 men in their 20s. Um who have a myriad of skills, but also, you know, you, you might get relegated or promoted this season on the decision of a referee. You you might have, you, you'll get relegated or promoted because you've signed somebody who suffers an injury or his his relationship at home is, is, is going wrong and he can't concentrate on his game and he misses that one chance. You know, the... the it's such a fine line between success and failure in football that uh, I think that the people who are making these decisions are getting involved with the game. They don't realise. They think it's down to what they are doing in the boardroom, which is a contributory factor. But there are you're ultimately you're being dictated to by a bunch of random variables um, be- between people over whom you have no control and over whose environment you don't understand because if you talk to any footballer you know the dressing room is sacrosanct you know the the owners are not welcome there they might come in and then it's um i I don't know whether you ever saw the the episode of uh of the fast show where you had ralph and ted and ralph went to see ted and his mates in the pub who all cheer it chatting away to and then the owner comes in and it's uh, you know hi sir and it, the environment completely changes so if you don't understand the environment which is going to deliver success within the business you you've got a problem i've always thought that part of the development of moneyball is because it allows the people running the business side of the football club to have an influence on the playing side of the football club because previously it's been 
the arms are put around it and it's like well it's like that scene in Moneyball when you've got the 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 baseball scouts who are just saying well he's got a good eye well he's 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 got good hands and it's it's not measurable and increasingly the 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 very intelligent highly skilled business side of football the people have got on into the business side look at the football side and say well we need to measure and improve these random variables as you just call them do you see that as well yes if, if you take a look at the clubs who are presently the top three in the premier league liverpool manchester city and leicester city those are the three clubs with the uh, biggest uh, data analytical teams in the premier league and, and and i think those two things are, is far more than a coincidence um, so clubs are, are moving to more of a metric-based analysis system. Um, I think players are giving access to data, um, and, and they're given uh, they're given education as to how to understand the data, and they all want to improve themselves as professionals. Um, you know, the, the 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 common perception of a footballer is somebody that, that trains for an hour and a half in the morning goes home either plays fifa or goes down to play golf with his mates isn't true yeah they, they are they are professional athletes and all aspects of their lives is being monitored you know, as, as close to 24 7 as, as can be allowed in terms of the relationship between an employer and employee by those clubs that are progressive and, and those clubs that are taking a a more of a money ball style approach um and that didn't work for the first few years at liverpool um, yeah, and but I think since uh, Jurgen Klopp has come in, um, he's very much bought into it. And, and you've got to have the you've got to have the coach as a believer, as well. You know, otherwise they'll 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 nod, they'll they'll sit down at the at the meetings with the data analytics team, and at the same time they're thinking, well, I'm still going to pick such and such a player because I think he's better. And but if if the if the owners sorry if if the if the coach and the players and the the development part of the club is completely committed to um, a data analytic, data analytics approach, then the club will have that that marginal edge um, that, that we saw in Moneyball. Yeah, I think I think also, I mean, two of those clubs have got benevolent dictators in charge of them. That's the other thing, and the other one's got Jurgen Klopp. Um, but <laughs> which is another factor. But I also think I think your point at the end is crucial. The the Moneyball side and the and the and the data analytics side, it's a long term view. It's a structural thing that you put in place. So it's going to outlast an individual coach or manager. Um, just finally, where, where can we where can we find you, and um, how can we read about you? Um, I'm. I, I spend uh, a lot of time on social media, um, on as, as the price of football. Uh, my, but my name's Kieran Maguire on Twitter. So, whenever clubs put out financial data, uh, that's uh, that, that's that's where I tend to focus on. Um, I, I do run the Price of Football podcast. Uh, I co-host that with with comedian Kevin Day, and I'm very fortunate that having a, uh, a stand-up comedian, uh, he's, he's a very clever guy, Kevin, and it also turns out that we. We, we actually have got quite we got far more in common than we actually realized as well so i think we, we work quite well together um i've uh, i've written a book called the price of football for anybody that wants to understand sort of more of the, the financial side of things you know to understand about how player costs are dealt with 
club valuations, how to analyse the results and things of that nature. Uh, I don't make money from it. All the royalties are going, uh, given that we're operating in the COVID world, to to the Trussell Trust, which is the uh, one of one of the food bank charities. You know, it, it's it's not going to make the same type of contribution that Marcus Rashford has done. Yeah, he's done absolutely amazingly well. I'm so proud of him as a, as a as a, as a you know, citizen of Manchester myself for most of my life. Um, but uh, it's a case of every little helps. Kerry Maguire, thank you very much. Thanks for the invite, Richard. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com.